For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even our father Isaac, for the children not, not yet being born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith, for he saith to, Mo, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith, saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same... This, this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show, show my power in thee, that in that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but O man, o man who art thou to repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say, say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Good morning. Who are thou? Who are you to reply against God? I want to thank you for being here this morning. I hope the things that I present to you will be beneficial and edifying. Those of you that are visiting with us, I hope that. Uh, you're uplifted and encouraged in your presence here today. I love the book of Romans. Paul covers the gamut of everything in our lives, whether it's Old Testament law, the salvation of Christ, the authority of God, um, our relation within, for, with, with one, relationships between one another, our relationship with government. He covers all of it. But I love Romans chapter 9 because Romans chapter 9 is, if you really want to know, it's, it's a synopsis of a large portion of what Job is about. The question and answer session that Job has with God. And what it ultimately boils down to is authority. That this is God's ball. He put us here. Who are we to question him? He'll show mercy upon him who, who will show mercy. He will give compassion upon whom he will give compassion. How can that which was formed say to that who formed it, why did you make me this way? I love this passage because it gets down to the crux of a lot of problems in life. Authority. Many years ago, D. Till was giving a gospel sermon and he was talking about a conversation he had with someone and it, it was a conversation about salvation. And this person gave their beliefs concerning salvation, which was outside the parameters of God's word. And D. Till asked the question, by whose authority do you say that? By whose authority do you make that decision? When it comes to matters of the heart, when it comes to matters of relationship with God, by whose authority do we do what we do? Authority is a funny thing. You know, I can tell my youngest son to go tell his sister to sweep the kitchen. And the next thing you know, I've got a big fight on my hands because my son is running there and gone, Ashton, go sweep the kitchen. So I have to go back and go, no, you need to tell her 
Mommy or daddy said, go sweep the kitchen. It's by my authority that I'm telling you to do that, not yours. But there's a fight because of it. Why? It's not the proper authority. Many years ago, there was a USA Today article. And the article had to do with more and more Americans tailoring religion to fit their needs. It wasn't a negative article. It was a positive article. There's some things in there that talked about 310 million Americans with 310 million different religions. Some excerpts from that talked about how that asked the question, can you create, can you celebrate Judaism apart from God? And the answer was yes. That you can pick the things that you like and share with a cultural, cultural way and you can have this positive experience apart from God. Another thing it talked about was don't romanticize the past. That fervent religiosity was in the minority. And we shouldn't romanticize the past because people really weren't that fervent about their religion. And this was a Christian preacher or teacher that was saying these things. And I'm sitting there going, you've never read the Bible because there was some pretty fervent religiosity in there. That there were a lot of people that went to their deaths for, for the cause of Christ. But the truth is, 310 million different religions has to do with one very important subject, and that's authority. By what authority do we do what we do? Many in our nation believe that they are the sole authority in their relationship with God. That God is not the authority, that they are the authority. So in this study, I would like to define what spiritual authority is and help us understand what it does for us. And then there's three things, there are four things at the end that helps us kind of what having a proper understanding of what authority does. So first of all, authority is the power to, uh, or power or right to give orders, to make decisions, to, and then enforce obedience. That's what authority essentially really is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Verses 9 through 13 says, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that that love him. That God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, saith the Spirit of man which is in him. Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom searcheth or teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. As Paul illustrated in the book of Romans chapter 9, what God wants for you and I, originates with Him. It doesn't originate with us. It originated with Him. He was the one who formed us. It is His will. And as Paul says here, in order for us to know God's heart, we have to know what's been revealed to us. And he says here, those things which have been revealed to us are not the things concerning the wisdom of man, but those things concerning spiritual things and matters of the heart. He goes on to talk about how that was those things are revealed by the Holy Spirit. The word which was given to us by the apostles through the Holy Spirit, 
These are the guidelines for man's life as God wants it. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 3, it says, How that, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you might understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Without this revelation from God, without this revelation by the Holy Spirit, we would know nothing of what God wants from His creation. And that's what Paul is driving at. These things were revealed to us, not by man, but by the Holy Spirit. Whenever we look and understand that, it's impossible, therefore, for us to reason out and go, well, surely God wouldn't care if I did it this way. Or surely God wouldn't care if I believed it this way. Because He's expressly revealed it to us through the apostles and the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is in perfect harmony with the words of Jesus Christ himself. And John chapter 16 and verse 12. I have yet many things to say unto you, speaking to his disciples, that you cannot bear them. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will come and he will guide you unto all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. Jesus hadn't taught the disciples everything that they needed to know. And he said, I'm going to give you to ensure the gospel is spread, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and He's going to bring you into the fullness of all truth and understanding. Therefore, the logical conclusion is that what Jesus taught plus what was revealed to the apostles would, be, would constitute all truth. And we can, can, can deduct from that conclusion and have confidence that something is apart from that or outside of that then it's not a part of the all truth. Or it's not a part of all things that pertain to life and godliness. Or it's not a part of all things that, are com- that completely furnish us unto all good works. It's outside of those things. These passages help us understand a very important passage that we read a lot in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Not every man that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall, I, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many saying to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then when I will press profess unto them, I never knew you depart from me, ye that work iniquity. When we understand passages such as John chapter 16, first Corinthians or second Corinthians chapter nine. And Ephesians chapter 3, what we understand when it comes to a passage like this, when Jesus is teaching, it's about authority. What are you doing? How you're doing it? Is it under the authority of God's will and what he wants for us? This passage expressly says there's a lot of things that are going, that are what we define in our world today as good things in which God's going to say, I don't know you. He's going to define some people as sin done based on things that we oftentimes prescribe as good in our culture and our society today. Why is that? It's outside the authority of God. It's outside the authority of what God wants for his creation. It's outside of God's will. The only ones that have entrance into that gate are those He expressly says that do the will of his father, which is in heaven. So there are things that seem good to us. That are not good to God, and that's because it's outside of his authority and his will. 
Christ teaches that standard in gaining interest. This should be a very serious matter to us. How tragic would it be to labor all of our lives under what we thought was what would be pleasing, pleasing to God, but at the end of all of it, just to hear, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The only way to be absolutely certain is to examine the will of God. Are the things that we do, the things that we say, are they a part of the all truth that Paul talked about? So understanding that correct spiritual authority, that it comes from God and from Him alone, we, under, we can understand then how it helps us and what God's intention for it was for you in our lives today. That having the proper authority really does help. I know in American society, having authority doesn't, isn't something that's really popular. It seems as, you know, being rebellious is part of our national pastime. But authority really does help. And one of the a lesson that I heard years ago from Ty Fleming, he talked about different types of authority and that there's, you know, functional authority that in a, in a home, you know, a wife has authority in the kitchen and her husband has no clue as to what's going on. And the wife doesn't have any clue as to what's going on outside. And whenever they ask each other to help, there's that different functional authority. And authority is a good thing and it helps us out. And anybody who's a parent understands that anybody that was a child that had proper boundaries set in their life understands those things. But God intended for this measure of authority or these boundaries that he set or the will that he set forth to be a good thing for us. And the first thing that correct spiritual authority does for us is it delivers us from human wisdom. And everything that I'm going to bring up, to be completely honest, is going to be contradictory to what the world thinks today. How can we say authority delivers us from human wisdom being a good thing? How can we say such a thing? Human wisdom argues in perpetual circles about any subject. If you consider the subject of abortion, suicide, fornication, you go on and on and on and on. Knew a young girl one time that was getting married. She had been living with her fiance for years. They had shacked up, as we would oftentimes say. And during that time, this young lady's mom didn't understand why she was shacking up. Well, there was no authority at which said that she said that she couldn't. She wasn't raised in a home where God was the centerpiece of anything. So you had one parent that had kind of some traditional old-fashioned views. A little bit, they, they were outside of what God wanted, but they were a little bit traditional old-fashioned. And then the next generation did what? Abandoned them completely and didn't did what they want. Neither one's right, neither one's wrong. But at the end of the day, or let me rephrase that. They're both wrong. But at the end of the day, there was that progression of what had happened. That's human wisdom. And that's where human wisdom got them. In Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. This passage is repeated Five times, I believe, in the book of Judges. You can count that and tell me if I'm wrong later. I believe it's five times in the book of Judges. This specific wording each time. When I was much younger, I had a difficulty wrapping my mind around this passage. To me, it was as if the author was saying, because there was no king in Israel, they had all these problems. Because immediately following this passage, 
It would usually, uh, this passage is at the end of a chapter in the book of Judges. And at the end of it, immediately following that, some horrendous thing happens. And I always read that as, well, that maybe the author's just trying to say, well, because everybody, there was no king, everybody just did what they did. They wanted to do, and all these bad things happened because of it. But whenever you look at the book of Judges and you understand what God's plan was for Judges, God's plan for Israel was that he was the king. And that there was this system of judges that he put in place to administer his will. It was a a theocratic system that it covered not only how they conducted themselves in the tabernacle, but how they conducted themselves civilly. And whenever problems would come up, they would go see a judge. Moses was the first judge. And so God had this plan that he put forth. And so when you read this, you're inclined to think, well, that's... Maybe why they needed a king, because what did Israel always want? They looked around at all the pagan nations around them and they said, hey, all these people have a king. Maybe we should have a king, too. And they would clamor to God for a king. And then you read passages like this as if the author is just saying that proclamation was right, because look at all of these bad things, because everybody just did what they wanted to do. But when you read it more and more, you understand the cycle of judges. Here's the cycle of judges, if you don't know. Israel worships God. They then go find a pagan God to worship. God raises up another nation, punishes Israel, and then raises up someone to be a judge that delivers Israel. And it's this repeated cycle over and over and over again of God delivering his people, the people turning to him, and then then going later on, eh, I like the pagan God better. And God having to deal out punishment again. It wasn't that they needed a king. That's not what the author is trying to get get across to us. It was they just needed to simply apply God's wisdom. That they simply needed to apply God's plan for them. If they would apply God's plan, we wouldn't have all of these problems. If we would apply God's plan, we wouldn't have this repeated cycle of our nation constantly being going through suffering. But instead, human wisdom reigned and we said we needed to have a pagan God or that we needed to have a king because everybody else has a king. The inability of human wisdom to discover truth is illustrated in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21. Paul says there, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. This passage really gets at the crux of a lot of things that go on in our society when it comes to human wisdom and God. That those that rely on human wisdom, that rely on the things of the world, they're not going to understand exactly what it is we do. And you can see that, that that was a problem in Paul's time, and it's still a problem today in our time. The media, television, they all want to portray those that believe in God, that follow after Jesus Christ, as foolish, as dumb. How can you follow after a God that... You can't see. How do you want to? How can you not do what you want to do? How do you hold yourself in and have self control and not follow after everything that everybody else does? How do you do those things? It's foolish. Then on the other side, you hear things like there's more than two genders. 
There's five, six, seven, eight, nine. I don't even know how many there are now. I just heard a presidential candidate honestly argue for the fact that a man that goes through the change to become a woman should have abortion rights. And I'm foolish. But that's what the world wants Christianity, those that follow after Christ, to think. That we're just fools. But Paul has specifically said what we do here doesn't make sense. When we teach Jesus Christ and salvation, it doesn't make sense to the world. So we shouldn't be shocked. But it allows us to focus on what God wants. A result of improper spiritual authority is the mindset that the truth should always sound good. Or that the truth should endorse uh, preconceived notions that we have. And the problem with that mindset is that when it comes to the gospel, a person first hears the truth, they are sinners. So it shouldn't sound good. It shouldn't back up all preconceived ideas that are out there. And Titus chapter 3 and verse 3 says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. God's submitting to God's authority and allowing His will to play out in our lives, it relieves us from trusting in ourselves. That doesn't sound very good to what the world would think. But do you always like to trust in yourself for everything? This relieves us from saying, having to go through the conflict of what the world wants from us and oftentimes what our heart wants from us. And here's a pattern in which God wants you to follow. And it relieves us from having to be, have compromise or struggle with any of those decisions. It simplifies things for us. When I was younger, one of the things that I realized, the difference between my brother and I, was that my brother is a very logical person. And I'm not. And as a man, I'll be completely honest, we don't like to say that, but I'm, I'll be honest, I'm an I'm a, I'm a emotion person. I have no problem admitting that now that I'm 44 years old. I wouldn't admit it for the longest time. 43, I'm rounding up. 43 years old, But when I realized that, and I honestly started thinking about that a lot, one of the things that I realized is that I've got to have people around me that are logical. And all of my closest relationships outside of my wife are relationships with guys that are completely opposite of me. They're very logical in the way they go about doing things. And I ask them a lot of times when I have a situation in life I ask them about it. Why? Because I need that side that I don't have. That I don't always seem to see firsthand. And as I've gotten older, those things come more naturally to me. But I needed that. I needed that relief from trusting in myself. I needed help. And ultimately, that's what we get when we submit to the will of God is we don't have to trust in ourselves for all of those decisions. It's simple. God wants this from us. That's what we do. 
In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you be henceforth, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Paul warns or gives this warning that says, You have to stay away from them because of the blindness of their heart. All of these things are from that simple fact. The blindness of their heart that they can't recognize the will of God. That they will not submit to the authority of God. And in not doing so, they can cause you to go down the same path. The third thing the Bible warns of the difference between, or the ability of feeling the difference and knowing the difference. And Paul says in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14 says, But the strong meat belongeth to them that are full, uh, full age, even those who by reason of use have, used, have their senses exercised to discern both good, both good and evil. Paul is talking in this passage about the fact that there we, is talking about the fact that we need to grow. And the process of growth. And at the end of that, growth is being able to take on more meat. The meatier things of the law. The more meatier things of God's word. That we shouldn't all be babes in Christ. What does a babe do? It bases its decision on how it feels. <laughs> There's no reason. There's no logic. I'm wet, I'm unhappy. I'm hungry, I'm unhappy. I get fed, I'm happy. I get my diaper changed, I'm happy. It's that simple. But he says, there needs to be a process for us that we go on to a point in which we are going after the meteor things of the law. And if we're at that point where we're still basing everything on emotion and decisions like a child does, then we're not growing. In Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not, lean not unto thine own understanding. Solomon gives the admonition that your understanding is not what you should trust. The world would tell you completely opposite. That you should follow after what? Your own heart. The Bible explicitly says, don't trust your own heart. Don't trust your own understanding. You need to lean on God. As a matter of fact, in Proverbs 16 and verse 25, it says, There is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the way, the way thereof is death. I think I may have butchered that last part, but you get the point. So we have this admonition not to lean on our own understanding. Another admonition that says, If you do trust in your own understanding, the end thereof is death. What do you think that is means for us that we don't need to trust ourselves? That we need to rely on God. We need to rely on His will. And we ultimately need to rely on His authority in our lives. Allowing God's word to be the spiritual authority in our lives enables us to avoid different pitfalls. We, don't, we won't reject the truth. How often do we get to a point in life... Whenever we hear and we talk to people and things about the word of God that sound hard, that they sound rough, and they say, I just can't accept that. I just can't accept that. 
because it's something that I want to do. And God's word and God's will is explicitly on the opposite side of that. But I just can't accept that. Which takes us back to Romans chapter 9. Who are you to question God? Who are you to just tell God, I can't accept that? How was that which was formed able to turn back to that which formed it and say, I can't accept That is arrogance at its highest level. When God all along is saying, I don't want you to have to trust in yourself because I'm the ultimate authority. I'm the one that formed you. I'm the one that created you. I'm the one that knows what's best for you. And if you'll just follow after what I want, you have great blessings ahead of you. In Mark chapter 8, verse 38, it says, Whosoever there shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in glory of his Father with the holy angels. We have all of these wonderful blessings, but on the same side, we also have some consequences coming our way if we want to refuse Jesus Christ. If we want to say, I just can't accept that. If we want to alter God's word to fit whatever we want in this life, this is the result. That's the promise that we have for us. We're protected from apostasy. You know what apostasy is? Apostasy is the act of abandoning a previous loyalty. When I was a young boy, I was loyal to the Dallas Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys fired Tom Landry. I was no longer loyal to the Dallas Cowboys. I apostatized. And for those of you that are going to pull me aside afterwards about the Dallas Cowboys, to be honest, I don't care about any football team anymore. If I watch football, I want to see a good game. So the point is, is as a child, I didn't like the Dallas Cowboys because of what they did to Tom Landry. They lost my loyalty. A better example of that, if you want to go to a good scriptural example of that, would be the Hebrews when they came out of Egypt. Time and time and time, again, they essentially apostatized. They abandoned a previous loyalty to go back to something else. What would they do? They get out in the wilderness or they get out when when God's doing these wonderful things from them. Things get a little bit tough and they say, oh, it's Moses. You've done nothing. You've brought us out here just to kill us. (laughs) Moses, you've gone through all this trouble just to kill us. We need to get a captain and we need to go back to Egypt. We need to abandon our loyalty to God. And time and time again, they did that. They gave up their loyalty to God when troubles arose. You know, in the New Testament, they were concerned about this. Paul was specifically concerned about this. In the book of Acts chapter 20, Paul is heading from uh, Miletus back to Ephesus or to Jerusalem. And he stops off in Ephesus. He calls the elders at the church of Ephesus and he warns them. He warns them about those, the ravenous wolves coming in and picking off the flock. He warns them about those that were from among the flock would turn around and pull people away from them. As a matter of fact, he says that within three years, this would happen. The warning that he gave to Timothy in 1st, 2nd Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, that people would not heed sound doctrine, that they would have itching ears, heaping onto themselves teachers, things that they wanted to hear. 
This was a constant concern throughout the New Testament was apostasy. Hebrews is a lot of that. People being drawn away by the Old Testament law or a delusion of what God's covenant was in the New Testament to make it something else. And the Hebrew writers having to just guide them back to where they needed to get back straight. When we heed the authority of God and His will, we're protected from apostasy. We're protected from abandoning a loyalty that we have committed to him. You know, when we, we don't have time to look at every scripture that talks about those things, but many of the modern uh, ideas of apostasy and problems that we have are addressed perfectly in the scriptures. When we look at the scriptures and we look at the teachings that man teaches today that we're saved by faith alone, on the opposite side of that, God is the spiritual authority. Man is justified by works and not by faith alone in James chapter 2 and verse 24. That baptism has nothing to do with salvation. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, I picked a little sentence out there, but it's a very important sentence because it says, baptism now saves us. Whatever's around that sentence really doesn't matter. Baptism now saves you. Whenever you look on the opposite side of that, it says that baptism doesn't have anything to do with salvation. Bishops must be single. Elders must be single. An elder must be or a bishop must be the husband of one wife. Love supersedes commands because love is the greatest thing and that's what's going to get us through everything. And that should supersede any law that's out there. When Christ explicitly said himself, if you love me, you'll do what? Keep my commandments. Hell is not eternal. This is the one that's come up in the last few years. Make things a little bit easier for us, ain't it? Make it a little bit easier for us to live a vile life. Your destruction and your pain is, it's temporary. It's not eternal. Make us feel good. Many times throughout the scriptures, specifically 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, eternal destruction. It doesn't stop. It doesn't end. It's forever. But you know, we wouldn't get in this position if God was the sole authority. We wouldn't be in a place of contradiction if God was the sole authority. If man didn't insert what they liked and what they believed and what they felt. The last thing proper understanding of authority does is it promotes unity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. You know what's inherent in this command to be unified is the reality that we can be unified. Unfortunately, man likes to adhere to its own wisdom. Alter God's will just a little bit to make it maybe a little bit more appealing for people. And then the next thing you know, you've got young men and young women shacking up, and it's okay. That process didn't start with that, with that generation. That started a long time ago. 
started a long time ago when people didn't stand for God's word. And things became socially acceptable would be the term that we would use today. And you can think of any number of things that that exact same process happened. And there has been division at the end of all of it. Because that's Satan's plan, isn't it? That's what Satan wants. He wants for you and I to question God. He wants you and I to question the former that formed us. He wants division, not only in your heart, but he would love division in God's church. In John chapter 17 and verse 20, Christ praying says, Neither pray for I, I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That they may all be one in, excuse me, that they may all be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. That they also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Christ's prayer wasn't just for his disciples that were with him, that was for you and I. His prayer was for unity. Paul recognized that unity could be achieved. And told the church at Corinth that very thing. Whenever we recognize God as the proper authority and the will of our lives, we have unity. And it is a unity that's promoted throughout the entirety of the scriptures. By whose authority do you do what you do? By whose authority do you... Make the decisions that you make. We all have different authorities that we have to answer to in our life. We have authorities at work. We have authorities at home. We have authorities in the church. But all of those stem from one authority and that being God. And those things in the world that we have to deal with, fine. We have to work with those authorities. But as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, these things are spiritual. And he was concerned about things of the Spirit. And ultimately, that's what we talk about time and time again, isn't it? It's not the here and now. It's not the world. It's after this. It's the promise that we've been granted after we're no longer in this world. It's the spiritual things that matter. That's where the real question of authority comes in. When we make decisions in our homes and for our children. And with our spouses, is it based upon what God wants for us or is it based upon what we want? This morning, I hope this has been beneficial and edifying for you. Have you submitted to the authority of God? We read there in Romans chapter 9 this, this morning about those that question God and God saying, I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy and I will show compassion upon whom I will show compassion. Previous to all of that, he had talked about the Gentiles being added into the promise of Abraham and Sarah. He had shown compassion to you and I. He's shown mercy to you and I. And he's extended that same promise to you and I. But as he also talked about in Romans chapter 6, that we need to be resurrected to a newness of life, that we need to submit 
to that will of God through the waters of baptism. Have you done that this morning? Have you submitted to the authority and the will of Jesus Christ? If you've not done that, we can help you with that. We have water ready and we can help you do that. Sometimes we get in a position in our state in life where we're not doing what we need to be doing. Sometimes we have struggles in life. We can help with those things also. We can offer up prayers on your behalf to Jesus Christ. If you would find yourself in either of these groups, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that has been selected.